This is the Residence AI Podcast, conversations about the future of media. Our 25th episode is part one of our conversation with John Giegengack. He is the principal at Hub Entertainment Research. And to begin, we asked John about the surprising success of fast or free ad-supported streaming TV. What we're seeing as time goes on is that people are stacking a lot more of these subscription services. So using four or five or six of them, often in, in addition to regular pay TV. And the cost of that is pretty high. And people are still really curious about all the new things that are coming out. So we're seeing a lot of the free ad-supported platforms like Tubi or Pluto picking up lots and lots of users. And our research says that people are willing to tolerate ads if they need to in order to save money or in order to get access to some show that they really want to watch that isn't available on an ad-free platform. In a nutshell, if you ask people if they want to skip ads, they'll say yes. But in practice, there are lots of conditions under which they'll tolerate them. And those conditions are getting broader as companies get better at delivering an ad experience that doesn't stomp all over the TV viewing experience while you're trying to watch. I think what people really object to is kind of the, the legacy live TV ad experience where there are a relatively high number of ads and there's a relatively high number of breaks and everybody sees the same one and they're not targeted to your interest in any way. For every hour that you spend watching TV, there's a significant amount of that that's devoted to consuming ads. And, And that was fine when people didn't have any choice, but now they do. And we see some of the things that make the biggest difference in people's satisfaction with the provider they're using, but also in their likelihood to pay attention to ads are things like having lower ad loads, things like having one brand sponsor a show so that there's just one big ad at the beginning and that's all that you see. Even really easy things like having a countdown clock that tells you how many how many ads or how many minutes are left before your show resumes, even things like that have a big impact on people's tolerance and on their satisfaction, not just with the advertising experience, but with the show that they're watching. And does this extend to ads before movies as well from what you've looked at? Yeah, the, the line between movies and TV is, is blurring. The more that people stream online and the more that, especially these days, the more, the more that those windows kind of get blurred in terms of when one is available in the theater versus one is available on TV. So it's, it's kind of a general rule in terms of video content in general. You know, I guess one exception might be that movies aren't generally edited for ad breaks to be inserted. So it can be a little bit more jarring if you've got ads in the middle of a movie. And that's one thing that people don't like. But other than that, in general, the things we found apply to, to TV content of all kinds. The streaming platforms have even a more of an advantage of this because they can, they can target people very specifically so that you can get a better cross-section of your target market without having to have as many ads in a show. And in fact, one of the things that's really interesting is that when you ask people from a blank sheet of paper, if they're worried about sharing private information with companies or being targeted based on information about themselves, most people say that they are. But when you ask about TV ads in particular, and you ask people, you know, which of these would add, do you think, enjoyment to your, your viewing experience? And then we ask them about things like, being able to see ads that are matched to you based on the shows you watch or being able to watch ads that are targeted to you based on your age or based on things that you've searched for online, those all actually perform pretty highly. So people are in a vacuum 
they're nervous about sharing their information, but if it's framed to them in such a way that you're going to be able to see fewer ads or ads that are more relevant to you, there's a pretty positive response to that, which to me, taken together, suggests that the idea of addressable advertising through digital platforms and through smart TVs has a ton of room to grow because it's something that's better for the brands that are doing the advertising. and It's also better for the people that are watching. So when it comes to how viewers are watching TV, in recent years, they've been able to tailor their experience. They have their traditional broadcast or cable, you know, channels they may go to or, or shows. And then, you know, they have their, their streaming platforms that they are, are adding into the mix. How different is that today than it was just a few years ago? So one of the things that we do uh, once a year is we, so, so in every study, every survey, we ask people to tell us all the different TV platforms that they're using, and it's, it's pretty exhaustive. And then one of the analyses we do is on the back end, we add up uh, those numbers to figure out the average number of TV sources that each person is using. So, you know, cable TV or another pay TV provider, uh, ad-free streaming, free ad-supported, platforms, uh, AVOD, like, like Hulu, where you pay and you also see ads, um, even uh, a, a traditional TV antenna. And so what we found is that since about 2018, the number of sources has almost doubled from about three and a half to almost six per person. And for sure, the, the biggest driver of this is stacking of those streaming providers. So I think the last time we did this, 40% of people had at least three of the five biggest streaming platforms. You know, the, the interesting thing is that people, you read a lot and hear a lot about people deserting regular pay TV. And for sure that's, that's happening, but not at the scale that I think maybe a lot of people would perceive, at least in our research, we, we split people into three categories. So if they use streaming TV only, which means they're a cord cutter or a cord never, people that use traditional sources only. So that means they just use pay TV and they don't have any over the top. And then people use a combination of both. So they have traditional paid TV and at least one or more streaming platforms. And by far, the biggest group of people are those who have both paid TV and streaming. So it's about two thirds of the sample. And the rest of the sample is split about evenly between people that are traditional only with no streaming and people that are streaming only. So the cord cutters and the cord cutters are growing the fastest, but they're still, you know, they're still only about, I think about 14% or 18%, at least of our sample. Do you have a generational breakdown on that? Not from memory, but it's, it's, it's higher as you would expect among younger people. They're more likely to be cord cutters, but at least for a lot of people, there are a lot of use cases where they want to have a traditional cable or satellite TV subscription. And from our research, it looks like the things that keep people involved with that traditional cable platform are local programming so like local news and local shows and sports sports is probably the big or or one of the biggest motivators for people it's 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 one of the biggest yeah but there's also that local programming is surprisingly big and even though you can get you can kind of piece together and get a lot of this content from other places one of the big things it isn't really a feature but it's something that keeps people on there cable subscription is just the inertia. So depending on who your provider is, you might be getting internet and home phone from the same company, or you might have to do some digging to figure out, you know, where could I get my local news and how could I get it from whatever that device is onto my TV screen so I can watch, get the traffic before I drive to work in the morning. All of that takes a little bit of elbow grease. And that's something a lot of people aren't feeling motivated enough yet to do. 
you're not seeing as rapid a decline then in, in cord cutting, say in another five years, wh- what do you think the breakdown is going to look like then? Well, I mean, if, we'll have to see. One thing that is happening that is probably more telling than a decline in the number of pay TV subscriptions is the number of people who say that pay TV is their default source of TV, the, the first thing that they turn on when they want to watch. And that's that's another question that we ask each year. We show people a list of all the different providers that they have, and they say, which one of these is your default source? By default source, we mean it's the first thing you turn on when you want to watch something. And pay TV has been declining steadily, and streaming, especially Netflix, has been climbing steadily. But live TV, as of last year, was still the single most common default choice. But if you added up all of the different streaming providers, there are more people who say that streaming is their default than live TV or live TV plus DVR plus video on demand, the three things you typically get through your streaming provider. So that's a really important thing because it suggests that we're going, and we have gone from where pay TV was kind of the center of the entertainment universe and streaming providers sort of orbited around it. Now streaming is really the center of the universe and pay TV is something that people are using situationally. If you look forward in time, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, makes me take, you know, these polls that you see that say in X years, you know, only 10% of millennials are going to have a traditional pay TV subscription. But, you know, I think, I think we're close to the time where, where no one's going to have a traditional pay TV subscription, at least the way that we think about it, because all of these big pay TV operators are, are innovating. It, it took them a long time to get around to doing that, but they've capitulated now and, and realized that streaming is here to stay and that the business model is going to have to change. And so that's why we see, and we'll continue to see, I think the offers from pay TV companies becoming a lot more compelling. We're seeing cable companies do things like integrate Netflix and Hulu and others into their own video on demand menus so that you can, if you have Netflix, for example, you can log into your Netflix once through your pay TV box and you can watch your Netflix through your regular cable remote on your regular TV without any other devices. And so those are all things that make cable TV a lot more compelling. And people who take advantage of those things say that they find a lot more value in their cable subscription than people that don't. And coming down the pipe, we also have all of the, the other things that pay TV companies can aggregate for you. So your home security, your internet and phone, obviously, which they do already, a lot of the other internet of things, capabilities that are coming, those are all things that a pay TV company can aggregate all of that for a consumer into one account and one payment and make it all simple. And the Netflixes of the world can only do television. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I think that all of everything else that's sort of wrapped up in a, in a package like that. I mean, I, th- I think if cable companies continued to offer the same package that they offered in 2010 and had no intention of changing it, you would see very quickly that people don't have a whole lot of use for that, but they're, they're not doing that. They're adapting. And I think that's going to change the equation. you had mentioned a little bit about cable providers trying to wrap in streaming platforms to get to those streaming platforms. They'll have a fire stick or other devices, or um, they'll have a smart TV. You know, there's, there seems to be a lot of options today to get to all of that stuff. Do you see this, cornucopia of devices and TVs being the default forever? Or, I mean, is that going to start getting winnowed down? I think it's going to start getting winnowed down. Smart TVs are supplanting uh, streaming media players. So that, you know, the external boxes that you can plug into a TV set to make it a smart TV. And they're, you know, smart TVs are replacing them for a couple of reasons. One is that 
people who are onto this stuff are, are seeking out smart TVs or have sought out smart TVs because they have a lot of capabilities and it eliminates one box and one remote you have to keep track of. Um, but the other bigger factor that's starting to come into play now is that it's, it's pretty hard to buy a TV that isn't a smart TV these days. And so even people who don't really care that much about if they buy a smart TV or not are going to wind up having one as they go out and replace their older TV sets. And that's an event like getting a new TV is one of the things that we see that breaks people's habits of where they are getting their content from. So our own thought is that this is going to put a lot of power into the hands of companies like Roku or Amazon because they have the lion's share of the smart TV operating systems, uh, you know, in streaming media players, but especially in, in smart TVs. And once you're in that operating system, for one thing, they provide a huge service for consumers, which is simplifying and aggregating all of the different TV providers that they're using. So we, we talked a minute ago about how the average person now is using you know, up to six different providers. People are really excited about having all that choice and all that content to watch, but it's a pain to try to navigate them, especially if you can't get them all on one device and you have to use you know, the, the input button. Maybe you have to switch remotes. So smart TVs, by aggregating those all in one place, provide something that consumers today really need. But that also gives the smart TV operating system a huge amount of power over which apps come preloaded on the TV set or which ones are recommended to people or which ones, uh, if you're searching for shows, kind of what gets surfaced first out of all the, the tons and tons of content that's out there. And we're also seeing Amazon and Roku have a lot of success with their own free ad-supported platforms. So now Roku is actually making their own content. They're getting more and more users uh, for the Roku channel. They bought Quibi and immediately set a record for streaming over their own channel. So I think you know everybody knows that, that Amazon is kind of an 800-pound gorilla in almost every industry that they enter. But I think the importance of Roku you know, despite their sky-high stock price, I think it might even it might be being a bit overlooked how much impact they're poised to have on what people choose to watch and how they find it. The Resonance AI podcast is produced by Random Inkara and Shane Malin. It's hosted and edited by Shane Malin, and our music is by Damian Johnson. To learn more, go to ResonanceAI.com.